This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and welcome to Witnesses of History for the end of August. We start with the murder of the Duke of Buckingham. He'd been James I's favourite and was a close friend of his son Charles I. Felton, who was the assassin, had been refused promotion by the Duke. He pleaded guilty to the murder and was hanged on the 27th of November in 1620. But this report from the 23rd of August, 1620, comes from Sir Dudley Carlton. The day betwixt nine and ten of the clock in the morning, the Duke of Buckingham, then coming out of a parlour into a hall, to go to his coach, and so to the king, who was four miles off, having about him diverse lords, colonels and captains, and many of his own servants, was by one Felton, once a lieutenant of this our army, slain at one blow with a dagger knife. In his staggering he turned about, uttering only this word, VILLAIN, and never spake a word more, but presently plucking out the knife from himself, before he fell to the ground, he made towards the traitor two or three paces, and then fell against a table, although he were upheld by diverse that were near him, that, that through the villain's close carriage in the act could not perceive him hurt at all, but guessed him to be suddenly overswayed with some apoplexy, till they saw the blood come gashing from his mouth, and the wound so fast that life and breath at once left his begotted body. You may easily guess what outcries were then made by us that were commanders and officers there present, when once we saw him thus dead in a moment, and slain by an unknown hand, for it seems that the Duke himself only knew who it was that had murdered him, and by means of the confused press at the instant about his person, we neither did nor could. The soldiers fear his loose will be their utter ruin, wherefore at that instance the house and court about it were full, every man present with the duke's body, endeavouring a care of it. In the meantime Felton passed the throng, which was confusedly great, not so much as marked or followed, insomuch that not knowing where nor who he was that had done that fact, some came to keep guard at the gates, and others went to the ramparts of the tower of the town, in all which time the villain was standing in the kitchen of the same house, and after inquiry, made by a multitude of captains and gentlemen, then pressing into the house and court, and crying out amain, Where is the villain? Where is the butcher? He most audaciously and resolutely, drawing forth his sword, came out, and went amongst them, saying boldly, I am the man. Here I am, upon which diverse drew upon him, with the intent to have dispatched him. But Sir Thomas Morton, myself, and some others, used such means, though with much trouble and difficulty, that we drew him out of their hands, and by order of my Lord High Chamberlain, we had the charge of keeping him from any coming to him, until a guard of musketeers were brought to convey him to the governor's house, where we were discharged." My Lord High Chamberlain and Mr Secretary Cook, that were then at the Governor's house, did there take his examination, of which as yet there is nothing known. Only whilst he was in our custody, I asked him several questions, to which he answered, viz. He said he was a Protestant in religion. He also expressed himself that he was partly discontented for want of £80 pay, which was due unto him, 
and for that he being lieutenant of the company of foot, the company was given over his head unto another, and yet he said that that did not move him to this resolution, but that he reading the remonstrance of the House of Parliament, it came into his mind that in committing the act of killing the Duke, he should do his country great good service. And he said that tomorrow he was to be prayed for in London. I then asked him at what church and to what purpose. He told me at a church by Fleet Street Conduit, and as for a man much discontented in mind. Now, we seeing things to fall from him in this manner, suffered him not to be further questioned, thinking it much fitter for the lords to examine him, and to find it out, and know from him whether he was encouraged and set on by any to perform this wicked deed. But, to return to the screeches made at the fatal blow given, the Duchess of Buckingham and the Countess of Anglesey came forth into a gallery which looked into a hall where they might behold the blood of their dearest lord gushing from him. Ah, poor ladies! Such was their screechings, tears and distractions that I never in my life heard the like before and hope never to hear the like again. His Majesty's grief for the loss of him was expressed to be more than great by the many tears he shed for him, with which I will conclude this sad and untimely news. Felton had sewed a writing in the crown of his hat, half within the lining, to show the cause why he put this cruel act in execution, thinking he should have been slain in the place. And it was thus, If I be slain, let no man condemn me, but rather condemn himself. It is for our sins that our hearts are hardened, and become senseless, or else he had not gone so long unpunished. John Felton. He's unworthy of the name of a gentleman, or soldier, in my opinion, that is afraid to sacrifice his life for the honour of God, his king and country, John Felton. Well, August being the time of holidays, we are our next two reports are of trips in foreign countries. And we start in August of 1792, with Richard Twiss's account of his trip to Paris in July and August of that year. In every one of the towns between Calais and Paris, a full-grown tree, generally a poplar, has been planted in the marketplace, with many of its boughs and leaves, these last being withered. It makes but a dismal appearance. On the top of this tree, or pole, is a red woollen or cotton nightcap, which is called the Cap of Liberty, which streamers about the pole, or red, blue and white ribbons. I saw several statues of saints, both within and without the churches, and in Paris likewise, with similar caps and several crucifixes with the national cockade of ribbons tied to the left arm of the image on the cross, but not one with the cockade in its proper place, the reason of which I know not. The churches in Paris are not much frequented on the weekdays at present. I found a few old women on their knees, in some of them hearing Mass, and at the same time, at the other end of one of these churches, commissaries were sitting and entering the names of volunteers for the army. The iron rails in the churches which part the choir from the nave, and also those which encompass chapels and tombs, are all ordered to be converted into heads for pikes. Hitherto, cockades of silk had been worn, the aristocrats wore such as were of a paler blue and red than those worn by the democrats, and the former were even distinguished by their carriages on which a cloud was painted upon the arms, which entirely obliterated them, 
Of these I saw above thirty in the evening promenade in the Bois de Boulogne. But on the 30th of July, every person was compelled by the people to wear a linen cockade without any distinction in the red and blue colours. I went once to Versailles. There's hardly anything in the palace, but the bare walls are very few of the looking-glasses, tapestry and large pictures remaining, as it has now been near two years uninhabited. I crossed the Great Canal on foot. There was not a drop of water in it. I went several times to the National Assembly. The tribunes, or galleries, of which there are three, entered warmly by applauses and by murmurs and hisses into the affairs which were treated of. All the coats of arms which formerly decorated the gates of hotels are taken away, and even seals are at present engraven with ciphers only. The Chevalier de St. Louis will continue to wear the cross or the riband at the buttonhole. All other orders of knighthood are abolished. No liveries are worn by servants. That badge of slavery is likewise abolished. And also all corporation companies, as well as every other monopolising society, and there are no longer any royal tobacco or sort shops. Books of all sorts are printed without any approbation or privilege. Many are exposed on stalls, which are very improper for the public eye. One of them was called The Private Life of the Queen, in two volumes with obscene prints. The book itself is contemptible and disgusting and might as well have been called The Woman of Pleasure. Of books of this sort I saw above thirty with plates. The common people are in general much better clothed than they were before the revolution, which may be ascribed to their not being so grievously taxed as they were. All those ornaments which three years ago were worn of silver are now of gold. All the women of lower class, even those who sit behind green stalls, etc., wear gold earrings with large drops, some of which cost, cost two or three louis, and necklaces of the same. Many of the men wear plain gold earrings. Those worn by officers and other gentlemen are usually as large as a half-crown piece. Even children of two years old have small gold drops in their ears. Well, from France, a few years later, we cross the Atlantic. On the 23rd of August 1879, Robert Louis Stevenson reports of his crossing. He crossed in steerage to New York aboard the Devonia and then crossed the continent to California on an immigrant train. It had thundered on the Friday night, but the sun rose on Saturday without a cloud. We were at sea. There's no other adequate expression on the plains of Nebraska. I made my observatory on the top of a fruit wagon and sat by the hour upon that perch to spy about me and to spy in vain for something new. It was a world almost without feature, an empty sky, an empty earth, front and back, the line of railways stretched from horizon to horizon like a queue across a billiard board. On either hand, a green plain ran till it touched the skirts of heaven. Along the track, innumerable wild sunflowers, no bigger than a crown piece, bloomed in a continuous flowerbed. Grazing beasts were seen upon the prairie at all degrees of distance and diminution. And now and again, we might perceive a few dots beside the railroad, which grew more and more distinct as we grew nearer, till they turned into wooden cabins and then dwindled and dwindled in our wake until they melted into their surroundings, and we were once more alone upon the billiard board. The train toiled over this infinity 
like a snail. And being the one thing moving, it was a wonderful what huge proportions it began to assume in our regard. It seemed miles in length, and either end of it within but a step of the horizon. Even my own body, or my own head, seemed a great thing in that emptiness. I note the feeling the more readily, as it is the contrary of what I have read of in the experience of others. Day and night, above the roar of the train, our ears were kept busy with the incessant chirp of grasshoppers, a noise like the winding up of countless clocks and watches, which, be, which began after a while to seem proper to that land. Well, there was no tourism as such, of course, in August of 1914, but there was still people moving in other countries. And this report by Richard Harding Davis is of the German army marching through Brussels on the 21st of August, 1914. Neutrality of Belgium had been guaranteed by the European powers, but was ignored by the Germans intent on reaching the Channel ports and Paris. The entrance of the German army into Brussels has lost the human quality. It was lost as soon as the three soldiers who led the army bicycled into the Boulevard de Jean and asked the way to the Gare du Nord. When they passed the human note, pass with them. What came after them, and 24 hours later is still coming, is not men marching, but a force of nature like a tidal wave, an avalanche or a river flooding its blank banks. At this minute, it is rolling through Brussels as the swollen waters of the Connemore Valley swept through Johnstown. At the sight of the first few regiments of the enemy, we were thrilled with interest. After for three hours they had passed in one unbroken steel grey column, we were bored. But when hour after hour passed and there was no halt, no breathing time, no open spaces in the ranks, the thing became uncanny, inhuman. You returned to watch it, fascinated. It held the mystery and menace of fog rolling towards you across the sea. The grey of the uniforms worn by both officers and men helped this air of mystery. Only the sharpest eye could detect among the thousands that passed the slightest difference. All moved under a cloak of invisibility. Only after the most numerous and severe tests at all distances, with all materials and combinations of colours that gave forth no colour, could this grey have been discovered. That it was selected to clothe and disguise the German when he fights is typical of the German staff in striving for efficiency, to leave nothing to chance, to neglect no detail. After you have seen this service uniform under conditions entirely opposite, you are convinced that for the German soldier it is his strongest weapon. Even the most expert marksman cannot hit a target he cannot see. It's a grey-green, not the blue-grey of our confederates. It is the grey of the hour just before daybreak, the grey of unpolished steel, of mist among green trees. I saw it first in the grand place in front of the Hotel de Ville. It was impossible to tell if in that noble square there was a regiment or a brigade. You only saw a fog that melted into the stones, blended with the ancient house fronts, that shifted and drifted, but left you nothing at which you could point. Later, as the army passed below my window under the trees of the botanical park, it merged and was lost against the green leaves. 
It's no exaggeration to say that at a hundred yards you can see the horses on which the Uhlans ride, but you cannot see the men who ride them. If I appear to overemphasize this disguising uniform, it is because of all the details of the German outfit it appealed to me as one of the most remarkable. The other day, when I was with the rearguard of the French dragoons in Curacao and they threw out pickets, we could distinguish them against the yellow wheat or green gorse at half a mile, while these men passing in the street when they have reached the next crossing become merged into the grey of the paving stones and the earth swallows them. In comparison, the yellow khaki of our own American army is about as invisible as the flag of Spain. Yesterday, Major General von Jarotsky, the German military governor of Brussels, assured Burgermaster Max that the German army would not occupy the city, but would pass through it. It is still passing. I have followed in campaign six armies, but excepting not even our own, the Japanese or the British, I have not seen one so thoroughly equipped. I'm not speaking of the fighting qualities of any army, only of the equipment and organisation. The German army moved into this city as smoothly and as compactly as an Empire State Express. There were no horts, no open places, no stragglers. This army has been on active service three weeks, and so far there is not apparently a chin strap or a horseshoe missing. It came in with the smoke pouring from the cook stoves on wheels and in an hour had set up post office wagons from which mounted messengers galloped along the line of columns distributing letters and at which soldiers posted picture postcards. The infantry came in files of five, 200 men to each company, the lancers in columns of four, with not a pennant missing. The quick-firing guns and field pieces were one hour at a time in passing, each gun with its caisson and ammunition wagon taking 20 seconds in which to pass. The men of the infantry sang, Fatherland, my fatherland. Between each line of the song, they took three steps. At times, 2,000 men were singing together in absolute rhythm and beat. When the melody gave way, the silence was broken only by the stamp of iron-shod boots, and then again the song rose. When the singing ceased, the bands played marches. They were followed by the rumble of siege guns, the creaking of wheels and of chains clanking against the cobblestones and the sharp bell-like voices of the bugles. For seven hours the army passed in such solid columns that not once might a taxicab or trolley car pass through the city. Like a river of steel it flowed, grey, ghost-like. Then, as dusk came and as thousands of horses' hooves and thousands of iron boots continued to tramp forward, they struck tiny sparks from the stones. But the horses and the men who beat out the sparks were invisible. At midnight, pack wagons and siege guns were still passing. At seven this morning I was awakened by the tramp of men and bands playing jauntily. Whether they'd marched all night, I don't know. But now, for 26 hours, the great army has rumbled by with the mystery of fog and the pertinacity of a steamroller. Well, finally, this time, we stay in August 1914, but move from Brussels to St. Petersburg and Sergei Kurnikov's report. There was a crowd in front of a newspaper office. Every few minutes, a momentous phrase scribbled in charcoal appeared in the window. 
England gives up peace negotiations. Germany invades Belgium. Mobilization progressing with great enthusiasm. And at 7.50pm, Germany declares war on Russia. Spontaneously, the crowd started singing the national anthem. The little pimply clerk who had passed up the irrevocable announcement was still standing in the window, enjoying his vicarious importance. The people were staring at the sprawling words as if trying to understand what they actually meant as far as each personal little life was concerned. Then the edges of the crowd started breaking off and drifting in one direction up the Nevsky Prospect. I heard the phrase German Embassy repeated several times. I walked slowly that way. The mob pulled an officer from his cab and carried him in triumph. I went into a telephone box and called up Stana. Yes, it's been declared. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. All right, I'll be over about midnight. I did not like the way her receiver clicked. There seemed to be contempt in it. When I got to the St Isaac's Square, it was swarming with people. It must have been about nine o'clock, for it was pretty light yet. The innovating, exciting twilight of the northern nights. The great greystone monstrosity of the German embassy was facing the red granite of St Isaac's Cathedral. The crowds were pressing around, waiting for something to happen. I was watching a young naval officer being poured by an over-patriotic group when the steady hammering of axes on metal made me look up at the embassy roof, which was decorated with colossal figures of overfed German warriors holding bloated cart horses. A flagstaff supported a bronze eagle, eagle with spread wings. Several men were busily hammering at the feet of the Teutons. The very first strokes pitched the mob to a frenzy. The heroic figures were hollow. They're empty! A good omen. Another German bluff. We'll show them. Hack them all down. No, leave the horses standing. The national anthem. Lord, save thy people. The axes were hammering faster and faster. At last one warrior swayed, pitched forward and crashed to the pavement 100 feet below. A tremendous howl went up, scaring a flock of crows off the gilded dome of St Isaac's. The turn of the eagle came, the bird came hurtling down, and the battered remains were immediately drowned in the nearby Moika River. But obviously, the destruction of the symbols was not enough. A quickly organised gang smashed a side door of the embassy. I could see torches moving inside, flitting to the upper stories. A big window opened and spat a great portrait of the Kaiser at the crowd below. When it reached the cobblestones, there was just about enough left to start a good bonfire. A rosewood grand piano followed, exploded like a bomb. The moan of the broken strings vibrated in the air for a second and was drowned. Too many people were trying to outshout their own terror of the future. Deploy! Trot! March! A group of mounted gendarmes was approaching from the other end of the square. The crowd opened up like the Red Sea for the Israelites. A new crowd carrying the portrait of the emperor and singing a hymn was advancing slowly towards the gendarmes. Their officer halted the man and stiffened at the salute. This was the only thing he did towards restoring order. The bonfire was being fed by the furniture, books, pictures and papers which came hurtling through the windows of the embassy. The emblazoned crockery of state came crashing and the shattering sound whipped the crowd into a new wave of hysteria. A woman 
tore her dress at the collar, fell on her knees with a shriek and pressed her naked breasts against the dusty boots of a young officer in campaign uniform. Take me right here before these people. Poor boy, you will give your life for God, for the Tsar, for Russia. Another shriek and she fainted. Men and women were running aimlessly around the bonfire. Is it an effect of light and shadow, or do I really see high cheekbones, slanting eyes, and the conic fur caps of Aladdin Mertz's horde? Whew, I let out the breath I've been holding unconsciously during the entire bacchanal. to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.